Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our special guest today, Dr. Fazali Rana, nicknamed Fuzz. So we'll, we'll, go, we'll refer to him as Dr. Fuzz during, <laughs> during this. Uh, who, his background is in biochemistry. So don't let that scare you off because uh, he, what he's really good at is taking pretty complex scientific things and making them intelligible to people like Sean and me who, are not, who don't have much scientific background. He is the vice president of research and apologetics at the apologetics organization called Reasons to Believe. Uh, it's a great parachurch organization that's do, just doing terrific work in apologetics around the world today. Fuzz has written a new book entitled Humans 2.0, subtitled Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism. So there's a lot to talk about here. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, so, Fuzz, thank you for being with us and for answering some questions and making a really complex subject uh, understandable to our audience today. Well, Sean and Scott, thank you so much. It's just an incredible honor to hang out with you. So thank you for having me. So t- let's start. What, what do you mean by the term humans 2.0? Well, you know, when you think about something that's the 2.0 version of anything, whether it's software or a computer gra- game, you think of an upgrade something that's new and improved. And we have developed technologies in the last few years uh, designed really in a, in a biomedical context to treat diseases and debilitating injuries that actually can be also used to enhance human beings, uh, to ex- ex- extend our capabilities beyond our natural biological limits, making us stronger, smarter, more psychologically well-adjusted. And, and so people are now looking at the prospects of applying these technologies to alter humanity, uh, to try to create a new and improved version of human beings, and uh, with an eye towards ultimately ushering what they will call a post-human future, where maybe we could even modify ourselves with technology to such a degree that what we wind up creating would be something uh, that would not be recognizable to us today as being a human being. Okay, so let's 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 be a little bit more specific on this. What what are some examples of these enhancement technologies that that uh, are designed to create an upgraded version of human beings? Yeah, probably the two biggies would be one gene editing, and the other would be. Uh, what are called computer brain interface technologies. And, and again, both of these are, are being explored for biomedical purposes. But for example, gene editing, which could be used to alter the genetic makeup of an organism, including human beings, could be used to treat uh, genetic disorders that people suffer from. But we could also use that same technology to create designer human beings, where we could augment our genetic makeup in such a way that maybe we would be physically stronger or, again, in, enhance our, our memory or our cognitive capacities. Uh, likewise, computer brain interfaces are designed uh, to help people that are struggling uh, with things like locked-in syndrome where they suffer a brain injury or a stroke and are unable to communicate or people that are a quadriplegics or paraplegics or amputees that could use this technology to control computer hardware and software with their thoughts. 
and, and that technology could be used to treat, again, a number of just horrific uh, conditions that people suffer from, but at the same time could be used to uh, uh, create scenarios where human beings would be modified with machine, uh, with machine systems to create kind of like a cyborg, like a, a human-machine hybrid that, again, could be an enhanced version of a, of a human being. So this idea, these ideas seem a lot like science fiction to many people, but they really are going to be a reality that is at our doorstep and, and be incumbent upon, it's incumbent upon us, I think, to engage these ideas because this is going to become part of our world sooner rather than later. One of the things that enamored me to your book is that you start each chapter with a superhero illustration and in particular Iron Man. Uh, why did you choose that character and what are some of the ethical and technological questions that we can see raised in the comics and the movie and in that character in particular? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a comic book nerd and, you know, and there's just a fascination in our culture today with comic book superheroes and that is a whole entire program as to why that's the case. But, but uh, I thought it would be fun to try to, to make the topic more accessible by bringing in kind of that, that superhero element. But to me, Iron Man is really the quintessential transhumanist uh, superhero. He's the quintessential superhero that relies really on technology to make him a superhero. Tony Stark is in, you know, a brilliant uh, you know, engineer, but in a sense, he's no different than any of us. He's a, a normal human being who attains superhero status through technology that enhances him. And, uh, and, and so many of the themes that are explored in the Iron Man comics are themes that are relevant to how we need to think about enhancement technologies uh, and, and should we use them or if we should use them, how should we use them? So there's a, a, the, the comic book, uh, Iron Man comic books have been a great laboratory where people have explored the implications of enhancement technology. And so it's a great non-threatening, hopefully accessible way to begin to introduce some of the things that we need to think about as we delve into the reality of, of human enhancement technology that's in front of us. Fuzz, let's talk a little bit about the ethics of some of these enhancement technologies that you describe in your book. You distinguish, as most people do who've thought about this a bit, distinguish between treating, using medical technology to treat disease, which is generally morally acceptable, and using technology to enhance otherwise normal traits in human beings, which you describe as questionable. Um, are, are there some enhancement technologies that you would hold are morally permissible? I mean, after all, if you think about it, we actually do a lot of things that uh, we try to do to enhance otherwise normal traits, to increase our life expectancy. Uh, you know, I exercise and take statins and do, you know, do all kinds of things to increase my life expectancy. Those are enhancing otherwise normal traits. Uh, so what's, what's the difference between treating disease and enhancing traits? And are there some enhancement technologies that are okay? Yeah, you know, uh, you ask an incredibly good question, and I, I sure hope I can give a reasonably good answer because this is something that I personally am still wrestling through, even after having written the book. Because uh, th there's a th there's a lot of complexity when it gets to the ethics of uh, of developing and deploying this technology. And 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 Scott, as you rightly point out, as human beings, we are technologically we're technological creatures. We have a, a very important relationship with technology. 
where every technology we develop is in in some respect augmenting ourselves our capabilities beyond our natural biological limits whether it's an automobile an airplane glasses that we we use for reading and the list just goes on and on and and so there's nothing inherently wrong with using technology i think to to augment or extend our our capabilities what i think is interesting and different about you know enhancement technologies that's is that we're actually looking at fundamentally altering our makeup as human beings, whether it's through gene editing or interfacing our biological makeup with a machine makeup, we're, we're looking at something that is really going beyond what we typically would think of uh, technology being used for. And you know, I, there are instances where I could easily see legitimate uses for uh, enhancement technology. So, for example, uh, if you are a construction worker and you have to lift very heavy things as part of your job, uh, could, could in interfacing yourself with an exoskeleton and making use of a computer brain interface be something that would be a legitimate application where that would allow you to maybe be more efficient in terms of doing construction work, where as, you know, with, uh, it, with current technology, it's much more cumbersome and, and maybe less efficient. So that could be an, an application, for example, that, you know, could be completely legitimate. You know, but and so the the line as to where does the ethical issue arise when you're looking at using enhancements uh, isn't clear cut, and it could very well differ from person to person, uh, quite frankly. And good people could really disagree on it. But I think intuitively we would all recognize that there seems to be a line that we can cross where we suddenly um, are probably in an ethical gray zone where that enhancement may go. Uh, uh, one step too far. You know, for example, you have people like uh, Michu Kaku, the physicist, as, or, and Elon Musk, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur who are looking at something called the brain net. And, and, and in fact, Elon Musk has just formed a company called Neuralink, where the idea is that instead of using computer brain interfaces to control exoskeletons or robotic prosthetic limbs, could we use computer brain interfaces to actually tether our brains together, where we could actually tether our brains with a number of different people that are in remote locations around the world. And now we begin to, to see scenarios where you, you wonder, are we actually losing uh, our identity as a human being when we begin to kind of meld our, 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 our brains into a, a larger collective, uh, where maybe we, wouldn't, we would lose control of our capacity to think? where somebody else could, could influence our actions through their thoughts. So this is where things start to get really kind of weird <laughs> and science fiction-y like, but where you begin to, I think, develop some ethical uh, angst about you know, whether this is a, a technology we should pursue. So let me follow up on that just for a moment. It sounds like you're making a distinction between certain types of technologies that it sounds like it essentially changes the hardwiring of who we are as human beings. So like, like gene editing, changing our genetic code or uh, the, the brain, the human brain interfaces like this. Cause there, I mean, there, there are lots of medical technologies that we use that have these dual uses like you described for, you know, for example, uh, you know, some of the drugs today that are being used to treat Alzheimer's are being used with people just over the age of 60, for example, who just suffer some of that normal memory loss that comes with aging. 
drugs that are used today, for example, to treat uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, mainly, they were designed, f- as you know, for use with people in the military who were coming back from these horrible things that they've seen in combat. But now those are being used to help uh, people just sort of smooth out their memories uh, to where their their memories don't provide the same kind of tra- tra- trauma peaks, uh, trauma valleys that they might otherwise do without that. What you're describing, though, sounds like it's something really different than those kinds of technologies. Did I, did I hear that right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, and and you know, as I point out, you know, we're, we are looking at a very complex <laughs> set of questions from an ethical standpoint. In fact, people that um, uh, that work in some areas of bioethics, particularly with a secular perspective on bioethics, are even lamenting the fact that we don't really have appropriate categories to even begin to deliberate on the ethical ethics of these technologies and are really calling out for a, a new system of, of, of ethics, in a sense, to try to help us process, you know, the decision-making regarding this technology. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Ken Samples and I do in the book is to argue that actually the Christian worldview produces an ethical system that is remarkably robust, that actually uh, can serve us really well uh, engaging the use of these technologies um, uh, and, and, and it's all that much more remarkable because that ethical system is really birthed 2,000 years ago, but yet it's so robust that it could actually guide our decision making when it comes to, you know, uh, taking on the use of technologies that could have, that were unimaginable, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. All right. So, so give me give me some give our listeners some some examples of how a, a Christian worldview can help sort this out. Well, you know, the, the, the Christian worldview, um, and, and when it comes to ethics, I think the concept to me that is really important, maybe centrally important, is the idea that as human beings, we bear God's image. And when it comes to technology and its application, that has, that cashes out in two ways. One is because every human being is an image bearer, we have inherent worth and value, which means that as Christians, we want to do anything we can to help mitigate pain and suffering. We want to do what we can to promote human flourishing. But we also want to be careful about ever exploiting another human being or sacrificing a human life for the benefit of another person, with that person being sacrificed, having no voice in whether they will, they willingly will give up their life for another person. Uh, We're concerned about justice and the equitable use of, of technology, so everybody has access to it. And then also another uh, idea that is important that flows out of the image of God is that we have dominion over the creation, which means that this is a, a motivation to, to develop science and to develop technology, and that we should use science and technology in fulfillment of the mandate to do what we can to promote human flourishing and minimize human suffering. And those combination of ideas means that we really do want to be aggressive about developing biomedical technologies recognizing the good it can do. But we also want to be vigilant about the use of those technologies in such a way that it, it compromises human life, it undermines human dignity, or is used in a way that would be considered uh, unjust. And that, that's pretty remarkable when you think about it, that the, the Christian worldview could really guide uh, important decision-making uh, in this way. 
when you talk about what the Christian worldview brings to the table, like the image of God, for example, it seems to me that a piece of this might be that we do have a fixed nature that God has made us, and it's only flexible so far. And I think previous revolutions, whether it was Marxism or the transgender revolution, denies certain things are fixed. And ironically, people end up getting hurt because of this denial. How does that help with transhumanism? What's your sense from both the science and from your Christian worldview, how far this can go? Or is it just kind of a gray area where we don't know? Yeah, you know, and again, what a great question. Uh, and, and I wish I could give just a definitive answer. And, 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 and the point I'm making by being somewhat ambiguous with both the question of, of the ethics and even the image of God question is that this is really an area that, that I think Christian thinkers need to engage and engage well and engage, you know, aggressively uh, because there's a lot of areas where, again, I think there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, to me, I mean, the, the, the image of God is part of our immaterial makeup, but I don't view human beings as just simply being a ghost in the machine. Uh, so there's an interplay between our, our, our spiritual makeup and our physical makeup. At least this is my uh, understanding of, of, of human nature from a, a Christian worldview perspective, which says to me that you could probably do rather extensive modifications to human beings and really not lose that immaterial aspect of our nature. Mm. Uh, But there does seem to be a point where you could alter our nature in such a way that really what results is is something that uh, is not not pleasing to God, is not desirable from a a Christian worldview perspective. And and so, um, yeah, I mean, you really are operating in shades of gray, I think, as to how far can you... um, can you extend, you know, the, our modification of our physical makeup and still not compromise that which is really important about us as human beings, which is, again, uh, the, the image of God. But when you start talking about computer brain interface technology, and particularly this idea of creating a brain net or, you know, or, or something like that, now I, I think you really are in, a, in an arena where I think you could could actually it could actually have implications for how we think about human beings and, and our, the image of God nature that we, we all possess. But again, we're really looking at unknown territory in many respects. Um, and I think you know, these kind of advances in computer brain interfaces are going to really press on the, the mind-brain problem in an interesting way that I, I think, again, Christian scholars need to engage so, you know, I, I wish I could do a better job, Sean, frankly, of answering the question in a more definitive way. But this is, I think, the, the, the interesting aspect about these advances, the frightening aspect about these advances. Uh, uh, but also, I think it, 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 it does create, a, hopefully, some sense of hope and, and, and recognition that we could use these technologies in good ways. Uh, if we are just able to influence the use of these technologies from our worldview perspective as Christians? Well, I think that's an honest answer. We really don't know how far some of these technologies are going. So some of this will be played out as we continue with the research and science and ethical reflection. Now, you give some examples of like technologies that are clearly dehumanizing. Even though there's a gray area in the middle we don't know, there's some that are clearly helpful and some that are clearly uh, dehumanizing. 
Now, when it comes to where this technology is going, you would say artificial intelligence in terms of robots becoming self-conscious. That's an example where you say that is out because that's a naturalistic perspective of what it means to be human or conscience. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and you know, it's interesting because I, I there are a number of transhumanist thinkers who argue that transhumanism in this in the posthuman future that awaits us, where we have machines that are quote unquote sentient and stuff, is going to put an end to human exceptionalism once and for all, and that it's just going to undermine this notion that we are image bearers, and and that really the best way to think about human beings is we're just a, a way station right now on an evolutionary journey, and why not take control and evolve ourselves into into something of our own making in our future? And so that is really something that I think strips human beings of of inherent worth and value. Uh, and so I think we do need to be able to defend the notion of human exceptionalism and the idea that we are image bearers, uh, and we need to be able to do it from a, a scientific perspective. You know, and, and to me, one of the grand ironies is uh, with with transhumanism and the idea that it could somehow undermine, you know, the, this idea of human exceptionalism is that to me, in many respects, uh, transhumanism is the best evidence I think we could point to, or one of the best pieces of evidence that human beings are exceptional. Because I know of no other creature that exists today or that has ever existed, including creatures like Neanderthals that could have co- could contemplate developing technology that could alter our fundamental biological makeup, at least in principle. Uh, that suggests that human beings really are exceptional. And, you know, part of the transhumanist movement is this idea that that death is unnatural, right? That there's something wrong with the way the world is, that, that we need to try to use technology to create a utopian future, that we you know, that we need to try to conquer the ultimate limitation that we all face as human beings, which is our, our mortality. We want to conquer death. And that there's a sense that, that there is some kind of destiny and hope and purpose that each individual has and that we have as a human species. And again, that is highlighting uh, our exceptional nature, that even transhumanists who want to undermine the notion of human exceptionalism are acknowledging that there's something inherently valuable about us to invest this level of technology to somehow create a, a hope or a purpose and a destiny for individuals and, and for our human species. And where does that sense come from? <laughs> because they, they're not advocating that we do this for dogs or for cats. So, you know, so to me, I think if we are, or, or if we recognize what transhumanism is about, it's very easy, I think, to turn transhumanism on its head and actually point out that this is actually an argument for a, a biblical concept of, of human beings. So say, say a little bit more about this idea of human exceptionalism. You, may, you make an argument in the book that, act, that science actually demonstrates that. You know, sort of, uh, apart from our theological notions of human beings being made in the image of God, the, act, the actual hard science demonstrates that. Uh, how, how so? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, much of the, the study of human origins is entrenched in an evolutionary worldview. And that worldview is shaped by Darwin's idea that we're just really only different in degree, not kind, from other creatures, that there's nothing really special about us as human beings. And this viewpoint has shaped anthropology, physical anthropology, for, gosh, 150 years. And what's intriguing to me is that in the last decade or so, 
there's a growing minority of anthropologists and primatologists who are arguing actually the data is showing that human beings really are exceptional, that we differ fundamentally from every other creature that exists. And kind of in a nutshell, what they've identified as what distinguishes us from other creatures is our capacity for symbolism, that we can represent the world with symbols, and we can communicate those symbols to one another through language and music and art, uh, that we have what's called open-ended generative capacity. That is, we can manipulate those symbols to create these scenarios, these uh, hypotheses, these, these alternate scenarios. And this allows us to to anticipate the future, to dissect and process the past. Uh, it allows us to do sophisticated problem solving. And then we, they also argue that we have theory of mind where we recognize that there are minds in, in, in other human beings like in, 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 in us and that we desire to connect those minds together uh, and, and through complex social structures. And so this combination of properties it seems to distinguish human beings from other creatures. And, um, and I would argue that these are just simply scientific descriptors of what, what we would understand as Christians, the image of God. So we can actually turn to anthropology in some of the, the, the most recent work and actually build a case that humans are exceptional in a way that is compatible with the image of God concept from Scripture. And hence, that justifies now us viewing human beings as image bearers uh, which means that we can legitimately advance an ethical system based on the image of God concept, but it also means that that as human beings, we do have some kind of value that is inherent to our nature that must be protected as we look to develop uh, these new technologies. That is really, really helpful to see the kind of intersection between the theological commitment to humans made in the image of God and the value that comes from it and what we can see in science. That was one of my favorite chapters of the book. Well, let me ask you this. How, how, does trans, how is transhumanism an opportunity for the gospel? Yeah, you know, the, the, the reason I, I wrote the book with Ken Samples, uh, Humans 2.0, was I, first of all, I just wanted people to be aware of what was happening and, and, and so that we can begin to engage uh, transhumanism well as Christians. But I, I also wanted people to recognize that there's a real opportunity for the gospel to be relevant in a surprising and a fresh way in a, in a future where people are contemplating transhumanism. Uh, because when you think about what transhumanism is about, it's really using technology to try to, to augment human beings in, with an eye towards creating some kind of practical immortality, with a hope towards creating a utopian future. And, and, and what's happening is that transhumanists are, in a sense, constructing a gospel where the mode of salvation is technology and, and science. And, and this is going to be a very attractive alternative to the gospel, the, to the Christian gospel, as we live in a world that's increasingly secular and is increasingly influenced by science and technology. But what I find interesting is that what is happening with transhumanism is the need that every human being has for what the gospel offers is being laid bare. You know, it reasons to believe we see so many people who use science as a, a barrier to protect themselves from the gospel message, where they, 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 they raise scientific objections to the Christian worldview. Well, with transhumanism, the opposite is happening, where science is actually laying bare 
the need that we have for the gospel. And so if we can, as Christians, articulate the gospel and, and show the connecting points between what transhumanists desire and what the gospel offers, this is an, an incredible opportunity, I think, to present the gospel in a, in a, in a, in a surprising way to a culture that I think may be more open to the gospel in, in, in decades to come than it actually is today. And, and part of that, of course, is having, being able to effectively show that science and technology is never going to ever deliver ultimately the salvation that we all crave as human beings. It's only the person of Christ. Well, that, that is such a helpful way to end this on, uh, focusing on the right place on the gospel message. And I think this is an encouragement to our listeners to, to be more uh, attuned to some of these developments in science and technology, because I think you're absolutely right, and your book does a great job of demonstrating this. It does turn transhumanism on its head because, because it, lay, it lays wide open that human desire for transcendence that the transhumanists are actually appealing to, and that the gospel is really what provides the answer to that, not transhumanist science. So this, this has been such an insightful discussion. I want to commend to our listeners your book written with uh, Dr. Ken Sample, Humans 2.0, Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism. For our listeners, if you get the book, the scientific section at the beginning is a little bit rough sledding. Uh, don't be discouraged by that because the, the, the rest of it, the, the ethical and the social implications of what you're describing scientifically are so good and so helpful, especially as you compare and contrast a Christian worldview with a naturalistic worldview. So uh, Sean and I give you kudos to you and Ken for writing the book, uh, and we want to commend it to our listeners. So Fuzz, thanks so much for being with us on this time today. Oh, it's, it's a real honor, and it, and it means the world to me that you, got, you guys would have me on your program. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Fuzz Rana and the book Humans 2.0, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.